Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like spiders, henries and grapes. Or art, depart and the tart. For me, that's a a culinary route that's Hmm. taking. Or marts, carts and farts. And we have in fact done the history of the... Bart. It's one of our most popular podcasts. It is. Which it, is it? It is. Well, it, I think it's the work of Sir Keith Thomas, uh, which connects very nicely to uh, today's topic. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of rubbish is in fact all about truth, secret habits and fixed wrestlingness? <laughs> it's also about politics in in, in post-war Britain. Mm. I, I'm very fond of the history of rubbish. Yes, me I could, too. I could write an entire book about me the too. history of rubbish. The man sitting opposite me, he is the hammer and nails of history itself. He's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Love James. Love it. I like to think of myself as, at all. as Martin Luther. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, so the man sitting opposite me is the Thomas Cranmer of Reformation history. He's The man is a genius, uh, but came to a sticky end. It's the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. So you can guess, well, sort of, you can probably guess what we're going to talk about today. Um, But it comes about because we have written a series of books on applying the histories of the unexpected theme to the Romans, the Vikings and World War II and also the Tudors. And a couple of weeks back, we released an episode on the Tudors and we actually thought there's a lot more to say about the Tudors. And what we're going to talk about is... The Reformation. It is the Reformation. We're going to be talking about the Reformation. It's something that James very often, as regular listeners will know, comes back to. Reformation and gloves. This is actually the Reformation podcast you're listening to. It is. So the Reformation, what is the Reformation? Um, The Reformation is essentially a, a process, a movement within Western Christianity in the 1500s, so the 16th century, uh, in Europe, um, whereby the Roman Catholic Church, which was the the sort of supreme church across most of Western Christendom, was challenged by reformers uh, who disagreed with various sort of ideas to do with um, to do with doctrine 
and also practice. So, so that's that's a sort of broad brushstroke definition. And they, it they were like whistleblowers, weren't they? Right they at the are, beginning, they kind of said, you, th- this is not right. What's going on here? So if you have a look at the history of the Christian church, the history of the Christian church has a big tradition of reformists within it. And so people have either what, what you effectively see is a sort of a, a sort of series of developments in the, Chris, in the Christian church um, where you have new innovations and people sort of then become complacent. Um, so you have new sort of ascetic ideals where people sort of set up monasteries and then they become sort of fat and, and sort of and and, you know, and sort of forget why they're really there and complacent. And then other people who come along and sort of say and want to reform that then lead to a sort of uh, sort of period of reform. Then you get complacency. Then you get reform. So the whole of the history of 2000 years has largely been that in the 16th century, we have a watershed moment whereby the universal authority of the church in Rome and particularly the Pope is challenged and it's challenged throughout throughout Europe. In Germany, we have, you know, we have the Peasants' War. You know, we have this kind of, this, you know, quite violent and grassroots, groundswell sort of, um, uh, sort of opposition to the church in, in Rome. Um, in England, though, which is largely where we're going to talk about today because we're talking about the Tudors, uh, it's altogether very different. Now, I want to give you two key uh, thing two key ways of thinking about the uh, Reformation in England. Firstly, it is a roller coaster, and secondly, it is an alcohol-free Reformation. Uh, very good. Do you want me to explain why? Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But <laughs> let's go with the roller coaster to begin with. So the roller coaster, the roller coaster is is rather like what we were talking about earlier on. It is the kind of ups and downs of the Reformation. And rather than just seeing it as a single movement, a single sort of Reformation, you need to think of it in terms of a series of Reformations. Okay. Plural. So we have we can distinguish the Henrician Reformation of Henry VIII, which basically saw the split from Rome, the divorce with Catherine of Aragon, the Reformation Parliament from 1529, a series of legislation brought in. And then um, Henry dies in 1547. His Protestant son takes over. And this is a son, Edward VI, who's been brought up by Protestant tutors and basically is a devout little um, little thing. Um, and we've got two sort of evangelical uh, powerful men in the country in the guise of uh, Protector Somerset and the Duke of Northumberland. And so the Reformation becomes much more reformist, so much more sort of Protestant-leaning. Um, you've also got church figures who sort of fit into this. Thomas Cranmer is the great sort of architect of a lot of this. Um, but then when Mary comes to the throne, as I think we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, um, the country swings back, and so we have a Catholic revival. Um, then when Elizabeth comes to the throne, again, in 1558, we have the 1559 Elizabethan settlement, which basically puts 
all the sort of reformist stuff back on the statute books. So rather than thinking of it as a as simply, you know, Henry VIII comes in and everyone is, you know, the country becomes Protestant, there are sort of ups and downs. And in fact, what happens is um, by when Elizabeth comes in, what happens is you get a definition of a an Anglican church, so of one single church that everyone suddenly has to sort of adhere to. And the problem is that that framework isn't as flexible, actually, as the Catholic Church once was, which was a church for everyone. This sort of laid down more or less what you should do, and it didn't fit the Catholics, and it didn't fit the Puritans. And so what you have is a splintering of religion. Um, so there's the, there's the roller coaster. Mm. Alcohol-free? Hit me with alcohol-free. Alcohol-free. Alcohol-free is basically to distinguish the... Reformation in England from the Reformation on the continent. As I talked about earlier on, the Reformation on the continent is a really sort of violent Reformation. Look at what's happening in France and the French wars of religion. You look at what's happening in Germany and you've got uprisings. In England, it's actually a pretty peaceful Reformation. It's a Reformation from above. And this idea of it as an alcohol-free Reformation is not my idea. This, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, I sat through the wonderful Christopher Hague's lectures on Reformation history, and he referred to it as the alcohol-free Reformation because it was just, you know, it just sort of went went through. It was almost Reformation by clockwork. Um, and talking to his wife about this, the reason that he came up with this idea, his wife is Australian, the reason that he came up with this idea was from watching alcohol-free beer adverts in Australia. That's it. That's amazing. I, Isn't it amazing? Alcohol-free? I think I don't understand it. <laughs> As in, it's not... So it's not a full... So basically, we're, if you have a look at what happened on the continent, the continent is a... So it's basic, a version that's less spiky. It, it's, le- it's less... It, it's... It's al- it's alcohol free in that it's less um, it's less full bodied. Ah, uh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, it's a, basically the the Reformation on the continent is a grassroots groundswell. People want a new re- a new religion and rebel because of it. In England, the old def- the old tradition was that Protestantism was pretty popular. Anti-clericalism, so a hatred of the clergy, um, seeing the church as full of abuses and basically unfit for purpose was was the traditional view. This was A.G. Dickens. A generation of historians that's around Chris Haig's generation came in and brought in a sort of new revisionist interpretation of the Reformation, which said, actually, it wasn't that popular. It's a Reformation from above, and actually, it took a hell of a long time to come in. Even once you've got the 1559 Protestant settlement on the statute books, um, what's actually happening in the parishes, um, people are more or less able to do exactly what they want. And so it's not until the 1580s when you have a university-educated clergy who are in the parishes. Um, so, it's the, the, alcohol-free. Yeah, that's excellent. The, the entire scope of what it's influenced and affected is is kind of mind-boggling mm. 
Um, mm. And we could do an entire unexpected history of of the Reformation itself. And I can tell you right now that it would include shadows. Yes. Ooh, yes. It would include perfume. It, it would include is. beards. Yes, yes. Think of all the popes with yes. their beards, the, the yes, post-Reformation yes. people. It would include clocks. Yes. Protestant time. Protestant time. What do you yep. mean by that? Well, Protestant work ethic. So the work ethic is that you have to sort of attend to your this Weberian concept uh-huh. that um, you know that as a as a, a, a Protestant work ethic is that you you are mindful about what you do and keep track of the time. Um, it's also all about beds, deathbeds. Yes, it's all about spying. It's about diaries. Is it? Yes, it's all about diaries. So, so the idea is that it is that basically you have to account for yourself. Uh, in spiritual terms, and with the with the Reformation, you we see a rise in spiritual diaries. Uh, so often, sort of puritanical diaries are people writing to to basically account for every all the things that they are doing in their lives. We've talked in the past about Lady Margaret Hobie's diary. Yeah, remember when we looked at that? And basically, her diary. This is a a, a gentleman, gentlewoman living at the end of the sixteenth. Uh, start of the 17th century, living in Yorkshire and kept a diary of her day-to-day life where she basically gets up, has breakfast, prays, goes out and does some stuff, comes back, prays, talks, prays. You know, so it's literally what regiments her life. But in our book on the Tudors, The Unexpected History of the Tudors, there are four different ways that that the Reformation comes into the story the history of bones, yep. the history of windows, the history of bells, and the history of fire mm. are all little ways into looking at the Reformation. Should we take one of those? Should we take one of those? Bones. Okay. The bones. So bones is all about relics. Bones and saints and relics. Bones yeah. and saints and relics. And you know, as part of the, the late medieval church or the medieval church, Bones of saints and pilgrimages to go and see them, you know, were an important part of that kind of Christian practice, a Christian Christian worship. And have you ever seen a bone of a saint? I've kissed a bone of a saint. Have yes, you really? Yes, yes, yes. I've done done all that sort of. Yes, of course. Where? If you go into in church, where they, they'll church? bring they'll bring things up. They'll bring things up. I, I've, in England, I, I have actually uh, in 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 England. Yes, okay, in England. Um, well, you were a historian. Were you like, this is preposterous. <laughs> this is not a saint's bone. This is as from a, a sparrow. As a, young, as a young boy, I was brought up Catholic, and it was the kind of thing that you, that you, that you sort of did. And you believe? Um, and and they, well, I, I mean, mean, you believe a, obviously. I mean, you believe that it was it was actually the bone. Well, of a saint. I mean, as a as a small boy, you're presented with something, and you you know you sort of do it. Yeah. Um, okay. And you know the the Catholic world is full of those kinds of things. As a skeptical. Academic and everything. I, I, you know, one wouldn't wouldn't wish to sort of preach about these things. But if you have a look at if you have a look at the preface to Christopher Hague's book of the English Reformations, he talks there about the the religious journey that he's had spiritually, and has gone through sort of periods of of strong belief to agnosticism to atheism. And I think a lot of a lot of um, a lot of academics do that. Uh, you know who knows where I am now. I'm certainly not going to not going to um, announce that on a podcast. Um, <laughs> the, but the the idea of relics in the Reformation is actually really important, isn't it? Because one of the things that I've come across 
that becomes a relic of the Reformation itself is where it all began. Ooh. It's the door upon which ah. um, Luther took his hammer and nails and... It could be about doors. About, he nailed the 95... He nailed his theses, which I said to my son, he thought I said he nailed his theses yes, to a door. Yes, I thought you would say that. <laughs> he nailed his theses to a be door. very careful with pronunciation now. Nailed his theses to a door. And this is, these are various uh, arguments he wanted to pick and discuss. He did this in October 1517. Um, anyway, I'll talk about this a bit later, but it, um, the door becomes a relic. And it is um, drawn as such, is illustrated as such. Where is it? Uh, it was burnt down in the mid-18th century. Right. It's been replaced by one. There's, there's an amazing one that there now, but it's a replacement of the original. Right. Um, but there is a particularly interesting 18th century engraving of that door on that church um, of a tourist essentially there. So he's a well-dressed man. He's standing yes. in front of the door. This is in 1715, so um, 202 years after it happened, and he's gesturing up towards the door. And there's another man standing next to him with a big stick, also pointing at the door. And so they're on, they're on a door safari around northern Europe. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, it's interesting. And, and there's, there is also belief that for a while, the actual nails with which he had hammered his theses onto the door were still there. And people were going to look at the nails which were attached to it. So there is even a... So that's kind of like a sort of Protestant pilgrimage, isn't it, really? Yeah. It is. But I mean, bo- back to bones. Bones are still very much part of, of Catholic worship. And if you go to you know, Rome or you go to Italy, you know, s- saints' bones are, you know, are everywhere. Um, of course, reformers uh, were well, not just refor- reformers, reformers within the church. So Erasmus, the, the Dutch humanist. So he's somebody who's still very much a Catholic, um, but criticizing it from within. He's very critical of this kind of practice. When Henry VIII um, dissolves the monasteries, one of the things that the people who are going into the monasteries and you know stripping the assets are doing is they are they're confiscating the bones and in some cases they're smashing them up. Um, and so there is so so bones are about conflict between you know different different sort of religious religious views. Mm. Windows. Before that, I want to carry on. on my doors. I'm going to Go intersperse on, my doors get, idea. Intersperse your doors. Um, we've yes. been doing this for so long now, you actually you jumped on exactly what I was going to talk about, which Did is I? slightly disappointing. Wait, what was that? Well, uh, do you know who Thomas Bennett is? Thomas Bennett? Just have a, have a big think. He, I think 1531, James. He was an Exeter schoolmaster. Yes, I do. Yes, yes. Thomas Bennett, the Exeter yes. schoolmaster in October 1531. Right, he had some beef. <laughs> and... Um, he was a bit of denouncing of the veneration of the saints and yes. the Pope was an antichrist. Yes. And he printed some stuff. Yes. Do you know what he did with it? He ate it? He hammered it onto the door of, of Exeter Cathedral. Did he now? With some nails. Did he now? He absolutely did. Now, here's another one. <laughs> this is really interesting. <laughs> so it's, yes, go on. May 1570. Yes. Papal excommunication of Elizabeth I. Yes. That was nailed onto a door. You're amazed by this, aren't you? I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Bishop of London's Palace near St Paul's Cathedral. I've got about 20 other examples here. Go on, go through them. Do you want to go through all of them? No, well, not, not necessarily all of them. My friend... Uh... <laughs> in 1521, James. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The authorities in Antwerp... Um, or... Uh... 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Became furious because a lot of Lutheran supporters had hammered with nails, ballads and libels yep. onto church doors and archways. That's 1521. So it's, so it's ve- four years it's after. Ve- it's very common practice. Um, my friend, my very good friend, Andrew Gordon. Andrew, if you're listening to this, um, happy 50th birthday. Um, and um, uh, he's written about the conscripting of public space. So this idea that if you want to get ideas around, propaganda around, you want to preach your word, you know, and you don't have access to printing presses, which you wouldn't have because they're all controlled, how do you get that? How do you get that out? Well, you you put it out in prominent places, and a cathedral door would be a prominent place. A marketplace would be a prominent place. There's a whole history of fascinating. It's really interesting. Yeah. Notice yeah. boards there. Yeah, yeah. But this, I really like the the irony of this is beautiful. Go on. Um, so when uh, when the Pope excommunicates Luther, what yes. happens? They print off the excommunication. Everyone hammers it onto their church doors. It's brilliant. It's, it's great. It's great. I mean, this this actually speaks to us about the, and I think I'm sure we've talked about this before, the church is an instrument of the state. So the church becomes, the church is somewhere where everybody goes along to or is supposed to go along to. And if you want any kind of message brought across, where do you do it? Where everyone goes. So, you know, so the pulpit, certainly post-Elizabeth I in England, the pulpit suddenly becomes a way of getting out, you know, uh, state propaganda. If we can, if we can talk about it like that, and one of the ways that you do it is not necessarily through the printed word or the written word, but it is through it's through sermons and through public prayer, the printing of public prayers that would be read out, that would announce the victory over the Armada. How would people know that the Armada was defeated? Go to church on a Sunday. Here's another thing to think about. Go on, toss Just it over. See if you can guess where this is going to go. The sound of the nails entering the wooden frame was not unlike the sound of nails being driven into a coffin. Cross. A cross. Oh, okay. You with me? Okay. So yes. there's all sorts of hammer and nail right. stuff going on. Goodness me. It's really interesting. And also, the um, it's all about doors. So, so the the church at the time by by hammering on his his 95 theses on the door and by questioning what the church was doing um a lot of people later argued he was essentially allowing jesus back into the church and so the doorway becomes a way of um al- allowing goodness back into the church back into this 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 public body and that is the same history as devil's doors do you know what a devil's door is no tell Have me you, about devil's door you need to go to a lovely church near totnes near us the uh, Church of St. Peter and St. Paul yes. is an example of a church yeah, yeah. with the devil's door. So most churches are built um, on the north-hand side of a road. Um, so the south door faces the sun. It's nice and means the north door is kind of hidden. And it was all at a time when they were built at a time when there were also pagan believers attending church. Anyway, the um, 
they started building small, like little hobbit doors, essentially, on the north wall of walls of churches. And um, it's all to do with people um, following different religions, but within the, within the same building. And also, it allows the yep. devil... Yep. Now, this is where you're going to come around the to... The devil in or the devil out? out? Out, which is a bit like a corpse door and the Vikings. Yes. So what happens yes. when you get baptised? Yes. You are flushed of the devil... Yes. Uh, but you were doing it in oh, a church. So the devil needs to go. devil up. needs to go Love somewhere. It. Love it. And so Love they it. have a door outside is, is which there, allows... Is there a shoe outside the, devil, the door? There might be a shoe outside the door. a shoe outside the door to catch so the devil. it's all to do with um, spirits going in and out of buildings as well. It's genuinely amazing, Ooh. the Reformation. And you we should, haven't even started talking no, about all the other stuff we're going to talk about. You should all uh, go and study the Reformation. It's br- truly brilliant. Miracles, angels, you know, all sorts. The natural world, all sorts. And uh, fire as well. And fire. We were talking about how do you discover news of the news of the Armada, whatever yes. it was. You go and look on your church door. You look on your notice boards. Yes, um, it's actually worth thinking about how everyone did it, did it as well. So it's actually a massive social network. Yes. So it's it is, like it's, a re, it's, it's like a retweet it's or a like social media. So he's he's he's, he's hammering up his ninety five theses, and someone else is taking that and then reprinting it and creating a thousand copies of that gives it to someone else who reprints it creates a thousand copies of that and so on I can't help but think that all those windows on Hardwick Hall are more about Bess of Hardwick just wanting a bit of bling this is a woman who had her initials sort of inscribed across the architectural space of this property yeah I like the idea with um, all of the window smashing that's going on is you've got some people who realise there's going to be window smashing in the very foreseeable future and they take their windows away. Yes. And they look after them. They kind of stall yes. them for safety. And then when all the window smashing has happened, even though it's still post for reformation, they put them back up. Yes. And also, I mean, it, it doesn't happen everywhere because there are those people. Even It's actually quite expensive to reglaze uh, windows in churches to keep the drafts out. So that it's only it's happening in certain parts of the country uh, at this time and other parts it's not. So it's a kind of an index of, I suppose, of how Protestant the country. If we can, if we can use a term like Protestant in this in this period, fire. You brought up fire. Yes. Yeah, so that's another way of communicating, isn't it? So we got communicating by smashing windows, which is one fairly yep. punchy way of um, saying what you believe in. But the Tudors were, were, were communicated using fire all the time. It's all yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it was a way of burning people. Burning heretics was, uh, you know, an important part of the of the Reformation, um, and it tended to be, you know, those who were reformist or who were Protestants who were burned. Not just in in Mary's reign, but in during the reign of Henry the Seventh, twenty four heretics were burned. Eighty one in the reign of Henry the Eighth. There are only two in the six years of Edward the Sixth's reign. Only two burnings. Mary was the one who really embraced burning. Uh, and during this five-year reign, almost 300 men and women, many of them very ordinary, but some of them very high profile, uh, were burned for being Protestants. So this is nothing compared to what's going on on the continent with the, the Inquisition in Catholic Spain. An estimated 150,000 people were persecuted and several thousand executed. And the reason, for, for Catholics, the reason that you burn people rather than do anything else is that you have a bloodless death, which is the best sort of salvation for the soul, uh, you know, supposedly. And it's this supposedly. part of the counter-Reformation. So the Reformation happens, then the Catholics go hard line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Okay. So, I mean, what happens is the Counter-Reformation is fascinating because what happens is the late medieval church is really a Gladstone bag of a, a Gladstone bag of a of an institution. It is, you know, it's something for everyone, you know, and the church is, you know, the church is open to all sorts of people within the community. It's a real sort of focal point of all sorts of things. It plays a really important role. Um so there while there is while there are definitions of what of who are heretics and who aren't, there isn't really you're not facing um you know national churches that you have to so it's not a sort of it's not a sort of state battle of the state um and not a battle that sort of crosses um over sort of geographical boundaries you're dealing with you know with isolated groups of people that you're that you're putting down um as soon as the reformation comes around you um you suddenly need to define what catholic doctrine is and catholic practice and bring about a way of defending yourself against reformers uh, and so the Counter-Reformation is basically set up not only doctrinally, but also in terms of the infrastructure in order to be able to get your own house in order. And go out. This is when we find the Jesuits you know, coming into being. So the Jesuit priests are this kind of important um, educational uh, elite force who then suddenly set up a series of schools around, around Europe. Yeah, and they're, you know, they're persecuted and hunted. People. Persecuted and hunted. They, they appear they in our history of holes we've done. They do, yes. Because they hide. They do, yes. Hide in holes. Um, and while we're talking about the Counter-Reformation, that is the link with beards, because there's ah. Sixtus V. Yes. Very famous. Just Google Vatican Museum's portrait of Sixtus V if you buy a computer, and you'll notice he has a truly excellent beard um, and became a, a really important visual image of the Counter-Reformation. Um, I sense we could go on for hours, but we should probably wrap things up. Bells. Ooh, Ooh, let's just bell, say a word. We bell, can't leave people bells, hanging. Bells Again, about communication. Thing. The bells are about communication. So one of the one of the ways in which you look at uh, popular adulation for rulers are, uh, you know, the um, the force with which the enthusiasm with which bells were rung, uh, and supposedly Mary was greeted with, you know. You know, widespread peals of bells. Um, Elizabeth also, you know, so we can see that they were, you know, at that sort of level, at that sort of index, they're popular monarchs. But also, the bell in the ser- during the service was a really important part of pre-Reformation, uh, late medieval church and their and their mass. You know, and particularly during the Eucharist. So when you're receiving the the, the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ. Um, the bell would be rung, so the, in particular the sacring bell, and that was banned by reformers. But what p- replaced it was instead a sermon bell, so a different kind of reformist bell. So fascinating, huh? All sorts of different we changes: do ghosts, werewolves. Ooh. The Reformation is all about those different attitudes towards them, fairies as well. Well, what we're going to do is in the coming few weeks, we're going to carry on doing what we're doing now, which is um, we are doing unexpected takes on well-known subjects. Yes. So we've done our Tudors, Romans, 
World War Two and the Vikings, and um, we've done the Reformation. We're going to do uh, High Women. We've done Pirates. We're going to do High Women. We're going to do um, Secret Codes. We're going to do Spies. We're going to do Treasure. We're going to do Nazis. Um, we're going to just sort of romp through, aren't we? Doing all sorts brilliant of fun, fun. stuff as brilliant well. Fun. Um, all brilliant fun, but with um, a couple of traditional, just focused on unexpected subjects coming up. Uh, James mentioned to me the idea of doing footsteps oh, before brilliant. we came in. It's a truly wonderful thing. And I have been meaning to do a podcast on walking backwards for so long. And I'm going to make <laughs> us doing it because I've got this, uh, in touch with an amazing artist. Um, and she's made a film about walking backwards and we're going to watch the film and we're going to talk about her and her work but I'm not going to do any more until we actually do it I'd like to do volcanoes let's do volcanoes we haven't done dinosaurs oh and we're also going to do um, uh, geographical stuff so we're going to do the unexpected history of Devon we are uh, yes. yeah we thought we'd start here if, if you if you um, own a county <laughs> do get in touch if you own a county <laughs> a church a castle <laughs> uh, a date a family um if you're royal, you own a country, <laughs> yeah. um, run a country. But we're starting touch. with counties, so we're counties. going to do Devon. Um, if, if you'd like us to do your county, um, give us a shout. We'll get in touch with the local museum and see what they've got, and we'll, we can see what we can knock up. I'd like to do Yorkshire, but not as much as I want to do Cornwall because it's closer. No, <laughs> not as much as I'd like to do gloves. <laughs> okay. And it's nothing to do with counties, but I am, I am relocating my obsession with historical handwear. Why is that? Because I'm writing a book at the moment on the history of gloves. So I'm obsessed. The other day, Sam, you get this, I decided that I would write a book on gloves before Christmas. And so what did I do? I went home and organised a bookshelf. It's got notes one end and really interesting things to read. And I wrote some of it down. I got very excited. Anchoring it in history with your writing. Exactly. Um, please refer to previous podcast for that one to make any sense to you at all. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And actually, can you please, please listen to us? If you're listening to us on iTunes, leave a review. If you're listening to us anywhere, leave a review. It really massively helps spread the word. James and I are trying to do something new. We're trying to do something quite difficult. Um, and it's time-consuming, it's fun, but we can't get anywhere without all of your support and help. So do please um, show us the love where you can. Yes, and on Twitter, in the Twitter sphere, you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. All live shows, all books, all information, everything is on historiesoftheunexpected.com. Do please check in there. Thank you all so much for listening once more, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>